Susan Swetnam had been writing creative nonfiction, including personal essays and memoir, and work about Intermountain West culture, including food and culture, for over 35 years. She is the author of seven books, with another currently in press and due out in September. Her articles and essays have appeared in many national and regional magazines, including Gourmet, Eating Well, Gastronomica, Journal of the West, and Edible Idaho. They've also been anthologized in collections including Where the Morning Lights Still Blue, Personal Essays About Idaho. She contributed to the chapter on the foodways of the Northern Rockies to Greenwood Press's Encyclopedia of Regional Cultures series. In 2013, she retired from a long career of teaching narrative literature and advanced writing courses at Idaho State University to devote more time to her own writing and to begin a massage therapy practice focusing on bereavement, geriatric, and hospice massage. So on Labor Day weekend, when my colleagues are doing what normal college English teachers do, grilling, reading, hiking, drinking a lot of beer, I live in my kitchen. Forgetting my real night life, forgoing my sanity, I concentrate on only one thing, baking bread for the Eastern Idaho State Fair. I abandon the semester's first round of freshman compositions, any attempt at housekeeping, reading, writing, my friends, my husband, and my cats. It's inevitably the hottest 36 hours of the year. Starting Sunday morning, I bake till late, get up at five, and start baking again. I coordinate a timetable for six recipes, write it on the sheet on a legal pad pilfered from my department, and prop it up on the counter. I spill flour. I play Vivaldi and Bach loudly and worry about bread sticking to the towel as it rises. My husband goes to Buddy's, which is just what it sounds like. I brush the sweat away and eye the, re the ribbons already hanging on the refrigerator door for reassurance. Though I bake every week, this is the only time that I count 10 precise minutes of kneading and use a rolling pin to shape the dough the way you're supposed to, rather than just mashing it down with my hand. I'm hooked. Two years ago, sentimentally inspired by remarriage and seduced by a brochure that I picked up, innocent that I was, in a fabric store, I entered a loaf of white bread and a loaf of whole wheat bread at the fair. I didn't get my hopes up, though, for I learned in the five years I'd lived in eastern Idaho that the area is full of wonderful home bakers, descendants of the pioneers, farm wives who stake their identity on such work. To make things more difficult, lots of them are Mormon. Women taught baking as tiny girls at their mother's sides. What chance did I have, daughter of a woman who relied on Pillsbury and Janet Lee for her bread? Why fool around with that stuff, my mother reasoned, as any sensible woman in suburban Philadelphia would have in the 1950s, when they could do it so much better at the store. Fresh bread was emphatically not part of my heritage. When my mother wanted to treat us to homemade rolls for dinner, she'd make crescent rolls, the kind that come rolled up in those little foil-lined cardboard tubes. To these days, the hollow pop they make when smashed on the edge of a counter sounds like luxury to me. So I figured, autodidact that I was, I'd actually have no chance to win. I didn't even plan on going up to the fair to check results until closing day. But the day after judging, as I scanned the list of results in the paper, there was my name. And I'd won not only a blue ribbon for my white bread, but the $50 special premium from the Bingham County Co-op. No matter that some of my colleagues spent the next year calling me Mrs. White Bread to my face. No matter that the special award I'd won was from a major purveyor of noxious chemicals to the potato growing world. I was hooked. 
I entered again the next year, more classes, and though the white bread didn't fare as well, I won blues for cracked white and raisin bread. This year, the stakes are high. Not only do I long to regain my white bread crown and defend the other titles, but many special premiums are offered, including $50 for potato bread and three five-pound cans of honey for honey bread. It's going to be a long weekend. Actually, winning a rib ribbon in the Eastern Idaho State Fair doesn't quite confer the individuating honors that winning a ribbon in, for instance, the, Iowa, the Ohio State Fair does. This says nothing about the quality of the competition. It reflects geography. Because of the size and mountainous terrain, Idaho has three state fairs, mine in the east, one in the west, and one in the north. It really ought to have more. If I lived in the vast central interior of the state, in New Meadows, say, I'd be damned if I'd drive loaves of bread more than 100 miles one way to the Western Fair. Most of the trip along the winding Payette River on a two-lane road crowded at that season with preoccupied Winnebago drivers squeezing one more weekend out of summer and impaired yahoos cutting firewood. 50 miles round trip from my home in, to, to Blackfoot, though, isn't bad, especially given that many of the women against whom I compete come much farther from Rigby and Malad City and St. Anthony's in pickups full of screaming children. I cruise along in blissful solitude, singing along to some rock chick or other at the top of my lungs, full of the exhilaration of being done, watching the light on the hills in a very different world than theirs. After two years, I'm still the only person in my circle who enters the fair. My friends visit the fair for sane reasons, to eat the wonderful greasy curly french fries, to bet on the quarter horses, to look at exotic breeds of goats, or to listen a little bemused to the Judds. Being an outsider does make entering tricky, though. I'm convinced that the judging isn't rigged, that the ladies in their ruffled western shirts and pantsuits who sit behind the tables don't peek at the little fold-over tags with the names on them. The problem is, though, that I have no one to consult, and the fair's rooms rules seem to change frequently, arbitrarily, and without explicit acknowledgement that things have ever been any different. For instance, this year's booklet casually announces in the small print, do not bring baked goods on plates of any kind. Use cardboard. In previous years, though, everybody put bread on plates. It was only the cakes that had to be entered on cardboard. Should I take the broadening of the category to heart? If so, how big should the pieces of cardboard be? As a person once denied the right to enter herbs in the Bannock County Fair till I'd met the letter of the entry law, I'd learned to be cautious about such P's and Q's. So I'll take both paper plates and foiled colored car covered cardboard to Blackfoot this year. Fortunately, the bulletin does spell out the exact requirements for the bread itself. An excellent loaf of bread should be uniformly golden brown in color, oblong in shape, and about nine by four by four in size. That's what we're aiming for, the other 20 or so women who enter white bread, the other eight or 10 who enter the other classes, and I. I've been doing my homework over the past two years, trying to learn about these other women. Not for nothing did I take methods of research in graduate school. My main source has been the Blue Ribbon Gazette a quarterly newsletter published by a woman from the Midwest. The experience has been informative, to say the least. For one thing, columns advise that if one really wants is to earn what the newsletter calls the coveted purple, that's a fancy sweepstakes ribbon, by the way, one is better off entering elaborate cakes or pies instead of bread. For another, the average fair entrance enthusiasm and actual baking marathons make me look like a lightweight 
One column is, is titled, Confessions of a Blue Ribbon Junkie. I've also learned that most, if not all, of the women who compete with me are absolute traditionalists about women's roles. Photos of grandchildren appear in the newsletter, as often as images of baked goods, captioned with editorial comments along the lines of, isn't he darling? Though I'm sure that the editor is sincere when she asks all members of the Blue Ribbon Gazette family to write and tell her about their accomplishments, I'm pretty sure my curriculum vitae is not what she has in mind. My fellow subscribers also seem indifferent or oblivious to fashions in light, elegant cooking. Their recipes use Crisco, Kraft candy caramels, chocolate syrup, and white sugar with abandon. One recently published recipe from Mississippi Mud Pie calls for a container of Cool Whip, a package of Duncan Hines fudge brownie mix, and two packages of instant chocolate pudding mix. When anything remotely exotic is used, it's always defined and often misspelled, as in amaretto, A-M-M-A-R-E-T-T-O, liqueur, L-I-Q-U-E-R. Though the competition is unlikely to win prizes for Nouvelle Cuisine, the magazine's content does amply demonstrate that these women know what they're doing as far as state fairs are concerned. The most recent issue of the Gazette includes a blurry Polaroid photo of a woman about my age, 37, sigh, uh, sitting proudly behind a card table covered with row upon row of overlapping ribbons with a big pile of purple sweepstakes ribbons on top. There must be 300 ribbons on that table. My refrigerator door with its handful of blues and reds and one proud purple looks naked by comparison. Still, I have more ribbons than the people who call me Mrs. Whitebread, and I'm proud of those little pieces of colored taffeta. As an outsider who's won big prizes too, I've attracted some attention from insiders. The first year when I went up to claim my check, ooh, can somebody give me that one? This is a little windy. When I went up to claim my check, the woman distributing prizes said, oh, you're the one, we've been wondering. My sister wants to meet you, said another woman at the table. Wait a minute. She dashed off. Women began appearing from the shady depths of the barn. But it turned out they didn't really want to meet me, not what I'd call meeting anyway. They just wanted to look at me silently. Hi, I said, trying to be friendly to break the silence. I'm Susan. Nice to know you, the oldest one said, nodding. They kept looking at me in silence for a few more seconds while I kept resolutely smiling. Then they faded back to whatever it was they'd been doing. You're the only non-Mormon ever to win, I bet, my husband. Another outsider, another academic suggested later when I wondered what that had been about. You're the only name they didn't recognize ever. Still, I said, it was strange. Look at it this way, he offered. Now they will know your name. And it is feeling more natural every year. I've grown to love those few minutes when cardboard box full of bread and arms, I make my way through the crowds of other exhibitors. They bear, bear armfuls of quilts, wedding dresses, tiny lop-eared rabbits, giant zucchini, gaudy, awful antique carnival glass, photographs of mountain sunsets and jars of meticulously packed carrots or beans. Once in the home arts barn, I looked surreptitiously at that little bubble on the top crest of my whole wheat loaf. 
I forget that I have a pile of freshman compositions and a kitchen full of dirty dishes waiting for me. It is the day before Labor Day. I am at the fair and I am home. I'm going to change the uh, genre and tone a little bit from personal essay here to a piece that also incorporates some research. Um, it considers how food can help a group of people deal with change and remember who they are. Uh, a longer and more formal version of this appeared in Gastronomica a couple of years ago. But what you're going to hear is the shorter, less formal version that Guy Hand published in Edible Idaho um, a year or so ago. So this is called Raspberries and Reverence. Even in late July, the 6.30 a.m. breeze is cool at 4,000 feet. So we're all bundled up. That's about to change, though, for a hot day as predicted. That's the reason we've already been working on this northern Idaho hillside for half an hour. Even now, the sun nudges the crest of the mountains to the east, 40 miles distant. Soon, the vast prairie of wheat below will burst into golden flame, and glare will obscure the notch, now clearly visible, through which Lewis and Clark emerge from their rough passage over the Lolo Trail. As we've done every morning this week, we're attacking a dozen dense rows of raspberry canes, picking them from both sides in a futile attempt to stay even with their prodigious output. A chickadee calls dee dee dee, a hummingbird buzzes by on its way to the sprawling lavender garden. There's no human noise here except tiny thuds as thumb-sized garnet red berries plump with sweet juice land in our buckets. My co-laborers on this hill above Cottonwood, Idaho are Benedictine nuns, the sisters of St. Gertrude, and their rule prescribes silence until morning praise at 8.30. Still, the mood is companionable, and I'm not the only one popping an occasional raspberry into my mouth. Sister Wilma, who at 93 has given up direction of the larger garden, but still rules the raspberries, grins and nods when I deliver another bucket to the accumulating cluster at the patch's end. The assembly of full buckets now covers more than a square yard. The berries we're gathering are designed for an event familiar to many people in northern Idaho, Boise, and eastern Washington the annual raspberry festivals that the sisters hold on the first Sunday in August to benefit their historical museum. Over its more than two decades of existence, the festival has become a big deal. Yearly crowds have expanded to as many as 4,000 people who wander the monastery grounds under the tall pines, browse the vendors, and visit with the sisters. Most importantly, though, they come to chow down on uber locavore raspberry shortcake. On the surface, this event might seem like just another folksy regional food festival, but this event at St. Gertrude's has roots that run deep into the community that organizes it. Foundations I've been privileged to, to glimpse during summer retreats in an oral history project conducted with I Idaho Humanities Council funding about a decade ago. The connection between evolving foodways and an evolving sense of what it means to be a nun at this monastery, this experience suggests, stands as one of the most vivid examples imaginable of the way that, can help groups of, that food can help groups of human affirm their identity. When I mention nuns and food, you might imagine those emaciated um, medieval nuns, right? Some of you may have seen that book, Holy Anorexia, with that just emaciated, horrible-looking nun on the cover. Um, but while some other ca Catholic monastic orders have been 
had a, what's the word, a dysfunctional relationship with food. Um, Benedictine tradition honors this world, including its food and its chores, along with the spiritual realm. Practical Saint Benedict built his fourth century rule, which is the order's guiding document, it, with specific instructions for daily chores, including how monks and nuns should manage their fields, pantries, kitchens, and dining rooms. He insisted that such customs of everyday life, as well as prayer, provided opportunities to forge holy relationships. This particular community has been honoring Benedict's ethos for more than 100 years, though the particulars of food production and consumptions have varied based on the evolving nature of religious life. In the early 20th century, immediately after the initial immigration from Switzerland, an austere garden and temple re reflected strict European traditions. Because the sisters had to do more manual labor on their remote plot in Idaho than they had in Europe, the traditional sparse fare of cabbages, turnips, bread, and occasional pork proved inadequate for health. And on doctor's advice, a wider range of vegetables, fruits, and meats appeared, starting in the, in the 1940s. And some of these women had to be convinced, by the way, that tomatoes were not poisonous, um, because they were Germans who were used, and anything that was pickled, right, was, was, was not pickled, a vegetable you could eat. Um, after Vatican II, visitors were welcomed to the, to the dining room and meal options multiplied. In the 1980s and 90s, a new kind of woman began entering religious life, mature, educated professionals, former poverty lawyers and social workers and such. These women brought new tastes and ideas that influenced what appeared on the table. Today you can find curry, enchiladas, lentil cakes, quinoa, spicy food, and even non-frugal fair trade coffee, offerings that would have shocked the original Swiss-German nuns of the 1920s, some of whom reportedly balked in old age at the introduction of pasta. The contemporary raspberry festival itself is possible actually only thanks to one of the historical changes. Before Vatican II, the sisters could not have imagined mingling with lay people to any extent, much less the crazed extent that happens on the first Sunday in August. Yet the way the harvest and festival play out also tells a rich story of very old beliefs. One of the most important is physical labor, described in the rule of sacred service. Traditionally, all nuns performed labora, work, as well as aura, prayer. But in the modern monastery, many find themselves working with their heads, not their hands. Every summer, though, the avalanche of raspberries necessarily revives the Benedictine tradition of universal physical labor. The prioress picks, the director of retreats and librarian picks, the development director picks. For three weeks, alarm clocks sound in the dark as women don long pants and thick gloves, then stretch and bend and deal with bug bites before they rush off to their other duties. Later in the day, they labor in the kitchen into the night to free ber freeze berries or make them into jam. As the harvest progresses, the nuns are also invited by the raspberry picking to recall another basic Benedictine direct directive, the promise of stability, the vow to stay with a particular community. Comparative memories of previous years and residents of past harvests are inevitable. Sisters reminisce about their first seasons in the field as postulants, ideal, nervous, apt to make mistakes. As they age, they contrast their current energy level with early vigor and reminisce about the quirky picking habits of beloved companions, now dead. Handling well-worn baskets and jars, they literally touch the past. 
The Raspberry Festival itself offers an opportunity to, to practice a third foundational virtue, hospitality. All guests who present themselves, the rule proclaims, should be welcomed with all the courtesy of love. And the sisters annually exhaust themselves to do just that, the first weekend of every August. They set up the grounds, organize an army of volunteers, cook barbecue beef, staff booths, give tours, circulate and greet. And greet. A few even bring up the rear in the fun run, shouting encouragement to competitors. A particularly energetic group dishes out raspberry shortcake to visitors. Great slices of pound cakes and dabs of Cool Whip are mustered. Quantities of berries, the quantity of berries offered is so great that people sometimes laugh out loud on seeing their servings. Besides evoking traditional Benedictine values, raspberries also affirm priorities specific to this community, notably its emphasis on responsible care for the earth. Some years ago, these nuns compiled a, a formal philosophy of land use document, which affirms eco-spiritual principles, anticipating Pope Francis's ideas by a long shot. They called the specific plot of land the community has tended for a century a gift, quote, entrusted by the creator. And they affirmed the responsibility to steward it well through organic and other enlightened practices. The land, the statement asserts, can and should be an inspiration to holy meditation. Reverend contemplation of the earth certainly, certainly comes naturally in raspberry season. On mornings like the one I described a few minutes ago, harvesters cannot help but be aware of the fruitfulness and peace of Monastery Hill. Nor can they avoid thinking of the earth's sacred rhythms. When the sisters compare their halls or hear the running tally for the year, they reflect on climate and microclimate. But you're higher on the hill and get more sun, one reflected to another. No wonder your rows are ahead of mine. More symbolically, the abundant raspberry harvest also linked this, links this community to its patron, St. Gertrude of Helfta, a 13th century scholar and mystic whose works glow with joyfully optimistic theology. St. Gertrude insisted in her numerous writings on the universe's unconditional loving kindness and forgiveness. At St. Gertrude's, one looks, needs to look no further than the raspberry patch for presumptive evidence that the, that the deity is generous indeed, especially to those who devote their lives. No one else in the vicinity has ever had such consistently abundant berry harvests, so abundant that frozen berries appear often at out-of-season feasts heaped into bowls to celebrate birthdays or to soften the gloom of a January day. Here we have raspberries in winter, an elderly nun once remarked to me. God is so good to us. So if you ever find yourself on the hill above Cottonwood, Idaho, on the first Sunday in August, sitting down to an enormous plate of raspberry shortcake, you do well to contemplate the beautiful implications of this beautiful dessert. This is local food at its most nuanced, it's food that reflects a century-old commitment to this place, to this community, and to an eco-spirituality that existed long before the term was coined. Raspberries are a tasty treat anywhere, but at St. Gertrude's, they're also an incarnation of faith and love. Alrighty, I'm gonna get personal for the rest of my time with the new baby. 
So this is a piece from a brand new book. Um, it's not even, actually, it's still in utero. Um, it's um, going to be published in, in mid-September um, by a national, a national press um, out of Minnesota, Liturgical Press. Um, um, and I do have some information on it. If you're interested, you can pick that up when, you know, uh, after at some point. Um, it's about Advent, the se season of preparation just before Christmas. So, you know, Christmas in June, I guess. Um, but um, I'm, I want to assure you, uh, at least some of you will be happy to know that I've decatholicized it in um, honor of this occasion. So this is a, a more secular version that is appearing in the, in the book. Um, I do want to let you know, though, that even the form being set in page proofs, um, even, at, even as we speak, um, this book is a little bit risky, and I really want to thank my publisher for taking a chance on it. Um, I'm fully anticipating that sometime soon after it's published, some offended purist is going to come out and complain about how secular and that she's actually being funny about Advent. That's just not acceptable. Um, tradition, traditional Advent books, you may have seen some of them, basically tell people to turn their back on all that preparation for Christmas, right? This is the fundamentalist thing that all the fun stuff that we do in December is taking Christ out of Christmas and kind of ruining the whole holiday. Um, um, and, and a lot of them really um, advise readers to go into a kind of cave of spiritual retreat and avoid all that dangerous stuff. Um, this book, on the other hand, tries to suggest that those very distractions that people warn you against things like decorating and sending out Christmas cards and planning parties and shopping and dealing with seasonal stress and cooking for the holidays can actually lead a person right into the middle of what the holiday is really about. So these are narrative slash reflective essays. Um, each one pairs a theme and some sort of ordinary Christmas preparation. The one I'm going to read is from the third week of the book. There, as I said, there's 16 of these. And it's about teaching children to prepare hol holiday goodies. And in the context of this reading, in, in terms of food and identity or food and culture, it's about, in a larger way, how the appar apparently mundane things, that, like things that happen in the kitchen, can really help a person grow into herself or himself. So this is called Cooking with Children. The two little girls peeped as joyfully as springtime birds all through that December afternoon in 1994. That day we made Christmas cut out sugar cookies using a recipe and a collection of cookie cutters inherited from my grandmother. Elizabeth, the daughter of friends for whom I'm surrogate godmother, shared the song she'd recently learned in kindergarten. She was especially enthusiastic about a tune whose title she announced as Reindeer Paws, as in up on the housetop, Reindeer Paws, but she heard it as Paws. Um, Kate, a year younger and always, always eager to do what Elizabeth did, chimed in with happy bellowing. Their mothers had confessed at a gathering the previous weekend that they'd fallen hopelessly behind in holiday preparation. What they needed was a childless interview to shop, wrap, decorate, or just take a nap or have a glass of wine. So I invited the two girls to join me. My husband Ford and I married when he was 44 and I was in my late 30s. We had no children. Though we assured each other that our students, the products of our writing desks, and each other were family enough, I was in my 40s by the year Kate and Elizabeth joined me in the kitchen and feeling the absence of little ones with a sadness that took me by surprise. 
Making my grandmother's cookies alone for the past few years had felt, honestly, a bit hollow. I caught myself dwelling, I'd caught myself dwelling morbidly on the fact that there was no one to whom I could pass along any of my Christmas traditions, including this one. In advance, I'd imagined our little cookie party in sentimental Norman Rockwell focus. In that picture, the two little girls stood on stools to reach the counter, entranced by the embellishments, red and green sugar, spicy-smelling cinnamon hearts, chocolate sprinkles and tiny multicolored balls, glowing draggies like the ones my brother and I always understood that we weren't supposed to eat, advice we ignored, as I suspect all children do. I anticipated that the girls would be adorable in their serious focus, that they'd enjoy hearing Christmas carols playing softly in the background. The Advent banking party was nothing like that. Giddy with excitement and relaxed since they'd known me from babyhood, Elizabeth and Kate grabbed cookie cutters and attacked the rolled, rolled out dough surface. The shapes tore as the girls tried to lift them from the counter. The delicate go dough grow, grew progressively more sticky. The girls' voices drowned out the CD player and I turned it off. Our background music consisted of enthusiastic staples of the elementary school canon. The aforementioned reindeer paws, all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth, Santa Claus is coming to town, and everything old is new again, daring alternative phrasings of traditional car car carols. It was loaded, it exploded, right? We three kings. Um, egg wash spilled, colored sugar and chocolate sprinkles flew in all directions. Silver draggies and cinnamon house hearts bounced off the counter and rolled across the wooden floor. After territorial outbursts, hey, that's my cookie, you're getting it on mine, I separated the, cut the cutouts into his and her, hers and hers baking sheets. Managing time proved difficult. Kate focused intensely, taking many minutes to channel just the right sugar color for each shape and arrange the Christmas tree balls and lights just so, while Elizabeth essentially threw decorations at her creations. A purple camel, an angel with one blue and one silver eye. At the end of an hour, we'd accomplished 20 cookies, six museum pieces, four exuberantly bizarre creations, 14 exuberantly bizarre creations. Three additional balls of dough remained to be rolled out, but the girls had had enough and were ready to splash in the outdoor hot tub. As I delivered them home, damp-haired and sleepy-eyed 90 minutes later, though, each stood very tall as she handed a plate of cookies to her mother, and there was much exclamation. Can we do this again next year? Kate asked. I'm not sure you even lasted an hour. My mother's what-did-you-expect intonation came loud and clear through 3,000 miles of telephone line. And what a commotion, what a mess you and Johnny always made. Nevertheless, I persisted with a custom again the next year, just as my mother had. Other children joined Elizabeth and Kate. Other foods appeared on the agenda after participants expressed interest in learning how to make them. I taught little ones and tweens and even a few teenagers to make those sugar cookies, along with gingerbread people, yeast pretzels, cinnamon swirl bread, chocolate truffles, Christmas-themed pizza. In retrospect, it seems incredible that those parents would have shared their precious children with me, blithely dro dropping the fledgies off for an afternoon in the care of a woman with who claimed precisely zero child-rearing experience, but they did. More extensive yet was the confidence extended by the parents of the dozen girls who enrolled in the Girl Scout troop I organized for Elizabeth when she entered first grade. Despite a fingers-crossed approach at the start, the project blossomed, 
For eight years, the girl, my co-leader, and I shared songs and crafts, hikes and camping, service projects at the zoo, and the homeless daycare center, science, cooking. We taught the girls to cross country and downhill ski to quilt to know the constellations. They explored careers by shadowing our friends. On a week-long road trip to Washington's, Washington's Olympic Peninsula, several saw the ocean for the first time. We listened to their troubles, celebrated their triumphs, and watched them grow. My girls, I still call them. Things changed as they entered junior high, though, and they grew absorbed in extra extracurricular activities. Girl Scouts obviously seemed to them like a remnant of their childhood. Though being sweet girls, they played along for one more year. And we finally dissolved the troop by mutual consent. I mourned, but I had other things at my, on my mind at that time, for Ford had recently been diagnosed with cancer. The girl's loss became the first of the progressive losses that began my own 21st century, a void soon absorbed into a greater void. You might say that I became simultaneously the first empty nester in our circle, as well as the first widow. One girl among them, however, proved faithful through adolescence and has been cooking with me for two decades at this writing. Unlike cherished others I could mention, Laura proved so disciplined, so eager to learn, and so naturally talented that when she turned 10, I undertook what seemed at the time like an iffy proposition, inviting her to help make hors d'oeuvres for my, for my big annual Christmas open house. That first December, Laura had never seen many of the herbs, cheeses, pans, and tools on my counter, but she seemed to know instinctively what to do with them. Enveloped in an oversized apron, she filled tartlets and top bruschetta, evincing flair as well as attention. At the afternoon's end, I invited her back for the next December. Thus began our enduring tradition. In the second iteration, I assigned Laura a simple recipe to prepare start to finish. I made that, she proclaimed when her, when her mother came to pick her up, gesturing with pride. Her responsibilities and expertise grew. Before many winters passed, I was vetting inspired brainstorms. What do you think if I put some curry in this turn turnover? Would it be okay to use a little grated orange peel in this chocolate? When I admired Lara's life skills, knife skills, she admitted that she'd been watching Julia Child. So soon, it seemed, Lara was driving herself to my house on those pre-party Decembers. Thanks to her new mobility, we added a planning meeting to the calendar, a session at a coffee shop on the Friday before Thanksgiving. At first, I was the one who provided the recipes, but soon I loosened the reins. Surprise me, I told her. Find a dish or two that would complement what we have, something you're interested in trying from a cookbook. Then give me a shopping list. The hors d'oeuvres she added to the roster joined the party's greatest hits. As I suggested earlier, I'd long feared that what I knew about cooking and hostessing would die with me. In the early years as a widow living alone, actually, I'd allowed self-pity to whisper that I was perhaps the most unconnected person in the world, and that what I knew about pretty much everything would die with me. Somehow, though, I discovered that I'd acquired an heir. Cooking with children seemed such a simple thing at the start, fun, messy, incidental. Over time, though, I came to understand it as a breathtaking gift. There was that generosity on the parents' part, for one thing, generosity whose implications deepened as I became not just a short-term babysitter, but a frequent custodian of their children. As any Girl Scout leader who takes the job seriously knows, the position means acting as a model of adult behavior and a transmitter of ideas. I became, through long acquaintance, a sort of extra parent or favorite aunt, someone whose words were repeated at family dinner tables. 
Susan says, parents would, would say, meeting me in grocery stores, imitating their daughter's intonations. What we did together shaped lifelong hobbies, reading, beliefs, careers. One of those girls actually works for the Denver Girl Scout Council, which I'm real happy about. In the cases of Elizabeth and Laura, I was accepted as almost a sort of co-mother folded into families with an easy, generous hospitality that I'm pretty sure I would have had trouble extending to an outsider myself. My childless state had seemed inevitable. Suddenly, I was mentoring children, and to my surprise, able and happy to do it. Life transformed as it opened to the pleasures, the challenges, the anxieties of a connection with young people that didn't end after a semester or two of teaching. The world became much more complex, infinitely richer. Mental, mentoring little girls was certainly not the sort of work I imagined for myself at age 40, back when I was making a life as a member of a self-contained newly married couple, too old to start a family. As a scholar, a professor, and writer preoccupied with publishing, with teaching, with chairing a faculty senate, a composition program, and a state humanities council. I'd always been convinced that I wouldn't have made much of a mother, too impatient, too insecure, too self-absorbed. The mothering my, I myself had experienced hardly a viable model. The call seemingly came out of nowhere. The tools sprang to use before I even realized I had them in my hands. That discovery of unimagined competence was a stunner at the time. Still, the experience was hardly unique to me. Proverbs of affirming the capacity will arrive with necessity or calling have appeared in myriad cultures, wise ones including Lao Tzu, Confucius, Buddha, Gandhi, Emerson, and Jesus have voiced such sentiments. The Catholic Church, which I attend a lot of the time, goes so far as to affirm in its very catechism that a higher agency operates in such circumstances. If the defined need needs us to do something for the greater good, both the desire and the skills required are provided. A person doesn't even have to be conventionally religious to acknowledge the pres presence of su such mysterious ways, though. And in the interest of, of full disclosure, uh, my own faith might actually more accurately be described as sort of Catholic pantheist Hindu, though I don't tell that to the Knights of Columbus, and it's not in the book. Um, um, but one of my favorite expressions of the drafted to serve experience comes actually from a fellow pantheist, the great 20th century nature photographer Ansel Adams. Asked how he was able to capture one particularly glorious image, Adams reportedly shrugged, then with, explained with a smile. Sometimes I arrive just, one's God, just when God's ready to have somebody click the shutter. Whatever the origin of those mentoring tools, they seem to have been good ones at any rate, judging by how the girls have turned out. To a young woman, they're ethical, kind, curious, loving. Many are engaged in helping provision. None has gone astray for very long. Their parents, of course, had the most to do with this trajectory, but at least I don't seem to have messed them up very much. When Laura went off to college in Montana, I assumed that our Christmas party cooking sessions would end. She, however, held no such assumption. During her undergraduate work, we chose the party date so she'd be able to drive home after finals in time for a day of cooking. Even when she studied abroad in Europe and South America, she somehow managed to appear in my kitchen on the appointed weekend of December. She's graduated and married now, working as an engineer in Missoula. 
Nevertheless, we consult on menus over the internet, and each year she drives down the continent's western spine after work on the third Friday in December, bursting through the door at noon on Saturday with a fresh apron and a familiar smile. We're friends rather than mentor and student these days, and thanks to long practice in each other's company, we become more efficient. This year, we're so far ahead that we feel free to take a break to do internet research for a swell summer trip we'll take together to Rejevic, where we're gonna run a half marathon together. Half an hour before the guests arrive, everything is plated and we've changed into fancy dress. Lighting the, cancels, the candles, we pour a sample of champagne, surveying the millions of glorious calories waiting to be consumed. To next year, Laura says, raising her glass. The doorbell rings. Her family enters, and I smile as she moves to her young husband's side. My friend H arrives, put his arm, puts his arm around me, and insists on taking photos of Laura and me with a bounty before it disappears. Soon the room is so full I can't see the door. People, as usual, just let themselves in. They all know to pile their coats back on the bed. Talk and laughter crest. I'm turning from one conversation toward another when a tap comes on my shoulder. Elizabeth home from her second year at the University of Washington Medical School, three days early for my party. I have the sudden eerie feeling that I'm channeling Mrs. Dalloway. Remember when she makes these? When we, excuse me, remember when we made these, she asks, brandishing a butter cookie coat coated in blue sugar in the shape of an angel. Then she wraps me in her arms. You may well not be willing to go as far as I dare to go, to imagine the hand of benevolent directive agency operating in the story I've just told. But I hope, at least, that you two have had, or will have, occasion to stagger in wonder at the perfect outcome of an unlikely, undeserved chain of events. A chain that begins with something as simple as cooking with children, and ends, despite great apparent odds and your own lack of conviction, with a gift of what you've really needed all along. You want to answer a couple questions? Anybody have questions? We might ask questions. I have one question. Yes. What is the best meal you personally ever cooked, and why was that possibly spiritual to you? Well, that's a wild question. I don't know. Um, hmm. There have been so many. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. I'm trying to think, Christian. That's a really hard question. Um, we could, one that comes to mind. Well, I actually cooked for my grandmother once. Um, and I made some of her recipes, but I jazzed them. Um, my grandmother lived to be 104. And I cooked for her when she was 102, which is really kind of scary. And so I made, she's a Pennsylvania Dutch, Pennsylvania German cook. And she made really sturdy food. But I took some of the things that she made and made it a lot lighter and put some extra sort of spices and things in it. And there was actually wine. She and my grandfather were <laughs> rock and rye people. Um, always a, a one decorous rock and rye, at least that we children saw before dinner. Um, but there was actually, what did I make? I, it was sort of a, a riff on sauerbraten. Um, but I also made the, I, it was, but it was much, much lighter. And I also made the, the noodles. And I made a, a coleslaw that had actually like ginger in it, 
which was not something she would ever have imagined. And it didn't have boiled dressing. It had a, like a sweet and sour gingery mint. That's what it was, gingery mint. And I was terrified. Um, she ate it all. <laughs> so, oh yeah, as a spiritual yeah. part was probably her loving it then. So yeah, she actually yeah, was like, yeah. Well, in a way, in a I way, Christian. Been like this all along, I'm yeah. too. I've yeah. Been, well, the <laughs> other thing, the, the other thing was that was was the sense that she was in eating it and liking it. She was accepting that I was different than she was, right? That I had grown out of her, but I was finding my own way, and that's the thing that was really meaningful. And one more question for me, real quick, as a writer, obviously an academic writer, and also a a personal essayist, and um, just a teller of narrative. I mean, I know food preparation, baking, cooking is something you do, but why do you think you write about it as often as you do? I don't know. I just do it all the time, and I write about it. That's a really good question. Um, I think that obviously food is so evocative, right? It touches who we are. It touches who we want to be. It touches who we were. It touches the communities we're part of, and it's such a rich vein. When you write about food, it seems to me, if you're doing anything that's any good at all, you don't just write about food, right? You start with food and think about all the places that it goes and all the things it means and all the people that it touches, including you. I mean, I food, making food is transformative as well as eating food and sharing food. I think that's a good way. Yeah, a good answer to that. Yeah. I mean, that's precisely why you do it. Probably any questions from the audience folks out there? It, it, well, almost like half an arm there, but is there some place we should eat in Pocatello, or is it all just a wasteland out there? There's got to be a few good restaurants, what, right? I mean, I don't know. Well, Pocatello has wonderful food resources, and the great thing about living in a town like Pocatello is that the home cooking, people's kitchens are the best restaurants. And so you have a sense in Pocatello that you're part of this really privileged community, and you go from home to home to home, and you have the sense that we're all sort of doing this you know, out of love and respect and, and pleasure for each other. And the raw materials are so good, and the place is so lovely. But the real food in Pocatello is, is in people's kitchens and people's dining rooms. And that's really a, a wonderful gift, I think. Well, thanks so much. Yeah. 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 So I guess we'll take like a follow up. We have a question over here. For the Raspberry Festival, the raspberry yeah, it's terrific. Yeah, it's it's yes. the funkiest, craziest thing you'll ever want to go to. But boy, are those raspberries great! I mean, the, the, the I, I myself have helped in the kitchen, and so this, I have actually seen people go what when they get their plates because they're so enormous. Um, there was actually a big controversy a couple of years ago because they've always just done angel food, and somebody suggested that they do chocolate angel food cake. <laughs> And that was debated for that was debated for several years before it came out, and now it's by far the best the best seller. No? Nice. So yeah. first, you said first Sunday. First first Sunday, first Sunday in, in August. August. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. Any other questions from folks here? We're gonna do like a short break, if not. So we'll do like a five minute break. Then Jeff Chu will be up here. But thanks so so much for being here. Let's give her a hand. And books. Inquire about books, and we'll have those later on. And yeah, get drinks, use the restroom, do your stuff, and that's it. We'll see you in five.
All right, folks. Here we are, Jeff Chu at the ready here. Um, Jeff Chu, like I mentioned before, has been with uh, us at Treefort, Storyfort, Hackfort um, for the last at least three years, right? Um, doing all kinds of amazing readings and events and is a wonderful writer out of Brooklyn. Are you still living in Brooklyn, right? And you are still writing for Fast Company as a contributing writer. He's also been in the New York Times, the magazine, Travel and Leisure, the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. So he's fairly fancy that way, which is pretty great. And he's from California. California. His family's from Hong Kong. He writes about food and culture at times. He writes about culture all the time. He has an amazing book called Does Jesus, Does Jesus Really Love Me? A Gay Man's, look at the whole thing, A Gay Man's Pilgrimage in Search of God in America, which is a fantastic book, which, um, as I mentioned a little bit before, Rediscover Books is not here tonight, but you can order his book through them. And being from the Bay Area, he does like the 49ers. Are you a, are you a Warriors fan, by the way? So I'm like giving up a lot to be here myself tonight because uh, I haven't even looked up the score, which is kind of hard. Um, but he also loves gin, apparently. And he also doesn't like beets. And he somehow likes postage stamps. What's that about? We'll find out. But anyway, he's going to get up here and read to us about food, culture, himself, the world at large. So Jeff Chu. Thank you so much. Uh, it's good to be back in Boise, and it's honestly hard to be back in Boise. Uh, my husband left on a business trip yesterday afternoon, and he didn't want to go on his business trip, and I didn't want to go on mine. We just wanted to be at home together. So there's been a lot of grief, and I can't promise you I'm going to make it through tonight. Uh, in one piece, but we'll see. Uh, I learned this morning, too, that uh, the son of a family that I know in Miami, he died in Orlando. So there's some personal grief there as well. But what do we do in the face of adversity? Uh, we tell stories. And we love, and we live, and here we are. So let's see how this goes. The first story I want to share with you is about my mom. Some of you who were at Story Fort a couple of years ago might have heard it. But I love my mom, and so I think you can sit through it again. <laughs> this is called The Meaning of a Meal. For lunch today, I had some steamed spare ribs over rice. The ribs have been in my fridge for over a week, and not a word from you food safety hardliners. My stomach is not just fine. It's also full, and so is my heart. My mother cooked these ribs when she was visiting, and they were some of the best I've ever eaten. I don't know how to make ribs like my mom's. Part of it is, I think, that something tastes better when someone else has cooked it. And that's especially true if that someone else is my mother, by far the best cook in our extended family. I love my grandmother. But anything she may try to tell you about those culinary genes being passed down is a lie. <laughs> Another part of it is my mom's secret sauce, some elixir containing Shaoxing wine, black bean sauce, salt, white pepper, maybe sesame oil. I can't remember. 
I'm sure she's told me before. It's easy, I hear her say. She would probably add that, as usual, I just wasn't listening. I could ask her for a more precise recipe, but she would just sigh. She has almost no recipes written down. They're all in her head. A third part of it, though, was something that has nothing really to do with the food itself so much as what the food represented. Last winter, my mom emailed me to ask whether I might like her to come to New York and cook a dinner for you for your birthday, she said. When I read her words, my heart leaped into hyperspeed, and I broke out into a sweat. She hadn't been to visit in years, not since my boyfriend and I moved in together, and not since that boyfriend became my husband. She'd met him only once, and that meeting was, to be generous, awkward. She didn't come to our wedding, but some months later, she sent that email. Food is, in our family, so many things. It is what we fight about. We started taking cruises together, partly because there isn't any argument about where to have dinner. <laughs> Eating is our most beloved group activity. One of the indelible memories of my childhood is sitting in my aunt and uncle's laughter-filled kitchen in Hong Kong, late one sticky summer night, a plastic sheet on the table covered by a quickly shrinking mound of fresh lychees and a quickly growing pile of peels and pits. Food is the thing we can always talk about when we have nothing else. If I'm at a loss for something to say to my mother, I can always ask her, and genuinely, because I always want to know how to cook a particular dish of hers. For my mother, food plays a specific and important role, saying things that she cannot. Even the paraphernalia of mealtime has significance. When she arrived in New York, one of the first things she did was to pull a gift out of her bag, an antique pair of ivory chopsticks. Everyone in our family has a pair inscribed in red with our names. And these were for my husband. Oh my gosh, I've read this story like a bunch of times and ah, gosh. She told him that it was my job to figure out where to get the inscription done. I reminded her that it was her job to help me come up with a Chinese name for the white boy. <laughs> Note that she never asked if she could come visit. The question was whether I wanted her to come cook dinner. We took her for other meals while she was in New York, Koreatown, where she happily picked at a whole fried fish, dim sum in Brooklyn Chinatown, where her face radiated delight at a simple plate of fish balls, our friend Adam's restaurant, where she dove into a huge and fragrant bowl of mussels. But those other lunches and dinners were appetizers and desserts. This trip was about one meal. Eleven friends joined us, dear and patient people who have played their own supportive parts on our journey and who knew that this meal wasn't just about the food. That Saturday, it turned out that my mom had prepared a dish for each one of us. At 5.30, they began coming out of the kitchen, first the starters, freshly griddled scallion pancakes, spring rolls, seaweed-wrapped sticky rice balls with Chinese sausage and dried shrimp, and then the mains, scrambled egg and tomato, always a homey crowd pleaser, a half dozen types of mushroom braised with abalone, big piles of Chinese greens dressed simply in oyster sauce. Slivers of pork tossed with crisp triangles of two kinds of tofu. Two chickens, one steamed, one poached in soy sauce. Shrimp stir-fried with a multicolored medley of vegetables. Two whole black bass steamed with ginger and green onions. A beef stew with big, gooey chunks of tendon. And those spare ribs. This was her gift, 
her gesture of lavish love, her way of saying that she is trying. She started cooking more than 24 hours before the first guest arrived, standing and stirring and chopping and tasting until her arms and legs ached and her own appetite was gone. She wanted nothing more than for us to stuff ourselves silly, to simply receive. So where do we go from here? I don't know. It was one visit, one big meal, and several smaller ones. We ate well. We were all on our best behavior, and we got along. There was some laughter. Nobody cried. It doesn't mean that we agree on theology or politics or that she's going to run for president of her local chapter of PFLAG. It means that she's working hard, and so are we, to love as best we know how. In some ways, it was a big event. In others, just baby steps. There is, I suppose, a lesson in the way she cooks, something that I want to try to remember as we keep walking forward alongside each other. In my mother's kitchen, nothing happens quickly. You plan, you marinate, you stew, you wait. Then, eventually, you feast. So I wrote that in 2013, the year after we got married. And then the following year, I, took, I did something uh, I never thought I would do, and I took my mom on a reporting trip with me. So this is a story that I wrote for Travel and Leisure's Asian edition about our trip together. It's called Chicken by the Sea. Any chef can tell you that the simplest recipes can be the most difficult to perfect. In the cuisine of the Chinese diaspora, few dishes seem more elementary than Hainanese chicken rice. How hard could it be to poach chicken, then steam rice in the poaching liquid? At its best, the slightly fatty chicken skin pairs harmoniously with the juicy meat. Each fluff of rice, infused with chickeny flavor, sings of a happy marriage of basic ingredients. I grew up eating Hainanese chicken rice every chance I got. It's a mainstay of Chinese Malaysian cooking, and a litmus test. I've used it to pass judgment on restaurants in London, New York, Hong Kong. And before my first visit to Singapore, which offers some of the world's best, I scoured page after page of online debate about which stall sells the finest version. And then I happily ate my way across town. Yet there is a reason it's Hainanese chicken rice, not Singaporean. It was born on the Chinese island of Hainan when waves of emigrants in the 19th century left for colonial Malaya to labor on plantations, they took this recipe with them because it tasted like home. I wanted to find the roots of this beloved dish, and meals are always best enjoyed in good company. So I decided to bring my mother, the best cook in our big food-loving family. I thought she'd enjoy both the eating and the expedition. She loves to travel, but she spends all her vacation time on her family, never on herself. This was a chance to help sate her unfulfilled wanderlust. Along the way, we hope to grasp how Hainan is changing and juxtapo juxtapose a taste of history with a glimpse of the future. This fast-blossoming subtropical island has become a popular destination, especially among Chinese snowbirds. It is now often called the Hawaii of China, though one acquaintance was quick to note, this is said by people who have never been to Hawaii. If China's provinces were sisters in a sprawling family, prosperous Guangdong would be the ambitious one who never found a ladder she didn't want to climb. 
Hunan, an agricultural heartland boasting fiery cuisine, would be the earthy hothead. Hainan, China's smallest province, would be the pretty little one that everyone forgot. En route to nowhere, it has little coal or oil, but lovely mountains rise in its heart. Its fertile coastal plains abound with maize, beans, and greens. And even in the rapidly developing city of Sanya, where the chief cash crop seems to be condos, you'll notice rice paddies alongside still sprouting high rises clad in old school bamboo scaffolding. Being a backwater has its benefits. Traffic is not terrible. Its clean waters produce abundant seafood. Hainan enjoys China's bluest skies. And when locals say that the forecast calls for fog, it's the real thing, not the yellow-gray smog that smothers much of the mainland. Other than the emerald necklace of golf courses along the coast, the tourist infrastructure is still immature. One morning, we visited the Yichan Cultural Village, which highlights two indigenous minorities. Most displays are only in Chinese, in which I'm nearly illiterate, so my mom reads the factoids aloud. The tribes worship a god with 33 incarnations, each of which removes a different kind of suffering. They also have a curious custom of honoring the dead by burying cut fingernails in small wooden boxes. They eat mostly seafood and game hunted with bow and arrow, raccoon, snake, and bear. There is no mention of chicken. Afterward, we bump down a country lane past locals untangling fishing nets by the roadside until we arrived at a restaurant called Shi Hai Ren, people who harvest things from the sea. Everything here is wild caught or from the proprietor, Miss Chan, who said she was born on the sea. What comes from the wild tastes different from what is farmed, much better, she said. Beneath a canopy overlooking the bay, we feasted al fresco on a superbly fresh green ras, steamed and crowned with ginger and scallions, shell on wok fried prawns, orange and white cockles with meat that looked like miniature melting creamsicles and tasted of the ocean. As my mother picked at the fish's bony remnants, she wondered how we might be able to take a live fish or two back to Hong Kong. Your grandmother would like this, she said. Forgive the pun, but we were happy as clams. <laughs> Yet I couldn't also help but feel that the siren call of the sea, or really the seafood, was diverting us from our mission to eat chicken. On Hainan, Hainanese chicken is not called Hainanese chicken. It's Wenchang chicken, after the city that supplies the island's finest poultry. It was also the port of departure for the emigrants to Southeast Asia, who took live chickens with them. Our first taste came in Sanya. Carl Chen, a chef at the Raffles, where we were staying, had recommended an unpretentious eatery specializing in the dish. The chicken, 42 renminbi for half a plump bird, landed on our plastic table with bowls of dipping sauce. Soy spiked with vinegar, garlic, ginger, cilantro. The meat had a pleasant chew. These were not unnaturally tender, corn-fed factory farm birds. The rice shone with chicken fat, and the kitchen, kitchen dished up wok-fried winged beans as an accompaniment. Most Hainanese agree that Wencheng chicken must be made from chickens born and raised in Wencheng. The waiter bragged that the chefs here slaughtered their own birds. So where were they? He gestured at a closet door. Squawks emerged from within. It was a hidden avian death row. <laughs> a couple days later, we drove to the outskirts of Wenchang, past rubber and mango plantations, to a chicken farm. Another point of agreement, Wenchang chickens must spend part of their lives ranging and foraging freely. Chef Chen had told us he prefers three-month-olds. The farm manager said that chickens were best slaughtered after six. For four months, they roam. 
And for the last two, they plump up in an open-air, palm-shaded longhouse on a diet that includes oats and coconut. From the farm, we went into central Wenchang. If Hainan can be said to be the Hawaii of China, then some opportunistic bureaucrat will soon try to rebrand Wenchang as the Paris of Hainan. Bridges arc across the laconic river, a bustling street market fills the banks, and at cafes around the main square, old men sip tea. Under a gazebo, others play Chinese chess. Historically, Wenchang has been the cultural capital of Hainan, but little ancient architecture remains. A surviving temple built during the 11th century has been rebuilt. Most intriguing, a gallery used as a local military hall of fame. Strikingly, most of the honored heroes were Kuomintang and had to flee to Taiwan after the communists won in 1949. We strolled Old Street, a curvaceous thoroughfare lined by 19th century European buildings with Victorian Gothic arches. Renovated within the past five years, the elegant buildings are almost all done in shades of gray. It appeared as if the restorers had only black and white postcards for inspiration. Of course, we wanted to try Wenchang chicken in Wenchang itself. We passed a couple of restaurants with sad-looking chickens languishing under heat lamps. And finally, we found the grandly named Yanhe Chicken Rice Palace. Too grandly, we learned. A waitress in heels tottered into the glassed-in kitchen to prepare our order. I watched her giggle as she flailed at a chicken with the cleaver barely making a dent. And finally, a cook taking pity on her took over. It wasn't worth the effort. Not good, my mom said after tasting the chicken. The skin was thick with fat and hadn't been properly rendered. The meat was bland, the rice was greasy, and I mourned for this bird. It had given its life in vain. What caused this tragedy? To find out, we needed to learn to cook. So one afternoon, we met Chef Chen in the Raffles kitchen. We had been told to reserve three hours for the lesson, which seemed like a lot of time to poach chicken and steam rice. When you're cooking Hainanese chicken rice, you can't be impatient, he explained. You have to cook slowly. So he took us to the walk-in refrigerators. First, two already dead young chickens, no more than a kilogram and a half each. Then he piled our trays high with lemongrass, shallots, ginger, cilantro, scallions, leeks. Into the stock went large pieces of ginger, 20 crushed garlic cloves, stalks of lemongrass, areca flowers, two green onions, one chopped up leek, some cilantro, all for two chickens. And we began to realize just how complex culinary simplicity can be. The next couple of hours were a whirl of mincing, smashing, crushing, pureeing, sauteing, poaching, and steaming. The chef guided us through the prep of the chickens. A clay pot of rice steamed not only with stock, but also chicken fat, shallots, pandan leaves, garlic, ginger, lemongrass, scallions. And then the trio of dipping sauces. The sauces provided the best metaphor for this dish's chameleonic character. The first was a bold local favorite, balancing tart and savory. It blends calamansi juice with hot oil, ginger, garlic, cilantro, maggi sauce. The second, popular among the Cantonese, is subtler. No citrus, just ginger, garlic, scallion, oil, and salt. The third we tasted only at the hotel. Bright in color and flavor, it suggested room to play. It built on that calamansi and garlic base, adding minced red pepper, a splash of fish sauce, and a sprinkle of sugar. This was all so much work that I questioned how it could possibly be worthwhile. Even when I thought the chicken was ready, it was not. You have to let the chicken rest at least in half an hour before carving it, 
Chef Chen said. So by the time we sat to eat, my legs ached, my head throbbed with hunger, and my stomach was grumbling too. But oh, this chicken. It was a revelation. And so too the rice. Each sauce stood out, the Hainanese one sharp and citrusy, the Cantonese one mellower, the pepper-based one vegetal. This chicken rice paired with these sauces what n was not one dish but three, each with different depth and dimension. Could I cook it myself? I don't know if I'd dare. Being in the kitchen taught me new respect not only for a dish I've long loved, but also for the craft. The other revelation of this cooking lesson, my mother. I am a decent home cook, nothing near as good as she is. But I realized I am a terrible cooking reporter. As we spoke with the chef who conducted the lesson in Cantonese, I had no idea what to ask or how. But it didn't matter because my mom, an accountant by training, blossomed into a journalist in the heat of the kitchen. Where I stood back, she moved forward, peering into steaming pots and hovering over cutting boards. When I was silent, she had question after perfect question, clipboard and pen in hand. How much ginger? That much garlic? How much calamansi juice? I brought her to Hainan because I thought it would be good for her. And really, it ended up being good for me. I remembered a moment years ago when I complained about how she treated me like a child. She gazed at me evenly and said, you will always be my child. And in the kitchen, that was true in the best of ways. She knew what I needed without me saying a thing. Throughout the trip, from our hotel balcony and on walks along the splendid beach, I had been contemplating the sea. Wencheng-born emigrants with their Wencheng-born chickens had sailed these waters two centuries ago. If you'd told them to use lemongrass or pandan leaf, they might have laughed. Three sauces? What would have been absurd to them was awesome to me. Places change. Tastes do, too. Some versions of chicken rice that we ate on Hainan were like the worst, but worst of the development we saw, slapdash and forgettable. This reimagined, refined chicken rice was a welcome reminder that good things can also evolve. But in the right hands, they retain and even elevate their essence. As my mother and I ate the fowl of our labor in the Raffles kitchen, I looked at her and my heart felt as full as my stomach. She's usually a woman of simple words, but her mouth now held none at all, only more chicken and more rice. She looked back at me, nodded her head slowly, and grinned. So I am in Idaho. This kind of coincided with a reporting trip uh, to explore the history of the Chinese in Idaho and Montana. I'm going to go on a road trip starting here, going up to Warren tomorrow, and I'm going to end up in Butte, Montana, which has the Pekin Noodle Parlor, which has been open since 1901. It's one of the oldest continuously operating Chinese restaurants in America. Uh, so you know, even as I'm looking back, at my mom and our relationship, I'm also looking forward for new stories. So I want to take you uh, to a different area of my life. Uh, in the fall, I'm going to keep doing journalism, but I'm going to seminary. And people ask, what are you going to do? Are you going to be a priest? I don't know. Uh, but I want to study some things. I want to sort out some things for myself that I've been wondering about. So what I want to read to you is, is an edited version now of um, something I wrote 
in March when I had a chance to go to the Holy Land. Uh, for a Christian to go to the, the Holy Land just before Easter, I think, is a particularly powerful thing. So these are some reflections from that trip. In Chinese culture, names are usually ambitious. They reflect your elders' desire for your life, and they connect you to something beyond the individual, the family, as well as spiritual realms. My Chinese name is Tianwei, which means heavenly wisdom. My grandfather, a Baptist preacher, chose that name as his prayer for my life. He didn't care that the phrase rings feminine in Cantonese, which people regularly comment on. One of the fun things about Cantonese culture is the lack of boundaries. I've been thinking about my name again and again on this pilgrimage as we've discussed the idea of the name, the concept of identity, the question of belonging. How do we label ourselves? With layers, of course. Among the Jews with me on this pilgrimage, we have Orthodox, Conservative, and Reconstructionist. Among the Christians, we claim Catholicism, mainline Protestantism, and various strains of evangelical and non-denominational. Our passports declare that we are American. Our last names tell collective stories, stories of love and struggle, of migration and adoption. Our first names mark us as individuals. On this trip, we've talked about interfaith relations. We've discussed intrafaith disagreement. We've wrestled explicitly and implicitly with relations among Israel's Jews, its Arabs, and all their neighbors. The thread that emerges is the tendency among all of us to invest in demarcating what constitutes us and who makes up them. So to forget someone's name, or worse yet, to erase it, is one of the most powerful ways to dishonor them. It signals exclusion. It says, I do not see you. It says, I do not respect you. On our second full day in Jerusalem, we visited Yad Vashem, the extraordinary museum that serves as monument and memorial to the six million Jews who were killed by the Nazis during World War II. The very name of the museum testifies to the erasure of names. Yad means memorial in Hebrew, and Vashem means name. Together, they allude to the words of the prophet Isaiah, who proclaimed an expansive vision of the grace and love of God. For thus says the Lord, Isaiah prophesied, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Our guide explained to us that the Nazis tried to take away the names of victims. So we try to give them back their names and identities. And so throughout the museum, one reads the stories of distinct individuals, people like Vladimir Potsper, who before his death in 1944 at the Kluge camp gave his pocket watch to two nephews who survived, and Chaim Klieger, who while living in the Warsaw ghetto, made for his little sister Sarah a brooch that includes a representation of a bread ration card, and Aristides de Souza Mendes, who as Portuguese consul general in Bordeaux issued entry visas for thousands of French Jews, was disciplined and lost his job, and was not exonerated until more than three decades after his death in 1954. At certain moments, too, the exhibits remind us of the names of the perpetrators. There's one wall that shows a group of Hitler advisors, men, and yes, they were all men, who helped him with his meticulous genocide. Some names are more easily recognizable, Eichmann, for instance. But one was a man previously unknown to me. 
named for a pastor who served in Germany hundreds of years before. He was a Hitler advisor, and his name was Martin Luther. It's easier to erase someone's name and negate someone's identity when you choose to see them as alien and non-human. According to our guide at Yad Vashem, the Germans were so set on othering that they created a new word for the Jews, untermensch, literally subhuman. It was hard not to juxtapose the systematic extermination of the Jews during World War II with the hatred and prejudice that endure in the world today. By the time we emerged from the memorial, my, my mind was numb with sorrow. My cheeks streaked with two hours of tears, which made our group's lunchtime feast that day all the more mind-blowing. When we walked into Yudal Bar, which is essentially a dining counter on three sides of an open kitchen, the Israeli dance music was already thumping. Pretty much the first thing we were served were shots of alcohol that looked like orange Gatorade. The way they poured wine, while well, one serving resembled a vat more than a glass. And I don't know how to explain to you exactly what Chef Asaf Seri and his team served us for lunch over the subsequent three hours. Is exuberance a cuisine? You could taste elegance and refinement in the food. There was a herbaceous crudo served on slices of watermelon with the sweet zing of balsamic, a beautiful carpaccio with parmesan and artichoke, jars of truffled polenta with wild mushrooms, a rib roast adorned with little but salt, pepper, and its own gorgeous fat. Yet nothing about the experience was precious. The chefs bantered with each other and with us. They mugged for the cameras. A couple of times, they took pots and pans down from the overhead racks and handed them out so that we could bang them together and shout for joy, just because. When one of his sous chefs noticed me taking lots of pictures from my side of the bar, she invited me into the kitchen for a better angle. As soon as Chef Seri saw me walk into the kitchen, he shouted, what are you doing? I froze. And then his face melted into a smile, and he asked me to come over to his side of the stove. He took off his apron, he handed me a spatula, and told me to start plating the next course. Fish fillets braised in a deep red sauce, studded with chickpeas and fragrant with Moroccan spices. For someone who loves to cook, it was an honor and a huge joy. Later, I stood outside the restaurant in the Jerusalem sunshine, chatting and smoking cigarettes with Chef Seri. I would not say that after four shots and three glasses of wine, I was the most eloquent conversationalist. But I did manage to ask whether every meal service was like this one, and he grinned. Of course, he said. Why not? We have to have joy. Then he said, let's go across the street. We popped into Yudel Bar's sister restaurant, Machni Yuda, where he said hi to the chefs and quickly down another shot. It was Arak, the bracing anise-flavored Mediterranean liqueur, a tad medicinal, a bit bitter, and at the end of this meal, warming and clarifying. We headed back to Udell, where the wide windowsill, which doubles as a long street-side table, had been covered with aluminum foil. Chef Seri and his assistants began covering the foil with a riotous dessert. It was like a Pollock painting in 3D. Clouds of whipped cream and curves of coulis, chocolate and strawberries, nuts and caramel, crisp disks of phyllo, chunks of cake. And then we attacked the mess with long-handled spoons and let's be honest, our fingers. And this truth could not have been clearer. The sweet and the salty are all the more profound when you have also tasted the bitter. This is resilience and this is resistance. We pray at the beginning of the meal to thank God for the food. But what if we thought of eating and drinking as acts of gratitude, too? 
I wonder whether it might be the most powerful act of defiance against the demons that for so long have lurked at the back of my mind, whispering that the bread and water that God offers are not for me. To sit and to feast can be a gesture of rebuttal, too, against those who have tried to take their places at the head of the table while fencing off the rest. In the Gospel of John, Jesus famously says that he has come that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. And as my friend the Reverend Jess Casquette points out, the Greek word in that verse for life is not bios, physical life force, the basis of biology, but zoe, life is the, that is divine and otherworldly, creative and beyond what we can already imagine. To be honest, I don't know that this pilgrimage strengthened my already shaky faith. It did strengthen, though, my sense that I need faith, that I need community, that I need relationship. It did reinforce my conviction that this ugly, scarred, and broken world needs the beauty, healing, and redemption that God promises. It needs Zoe. In our fraction, fractious and violent societies, what might we do better to bring that about? On our last morning in Jerusalem, my friend and fellow pilgrim Melissa Green and I woke early to head for the old city. At the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, we visited the various chapels, starting with the side-by-side -side Greek Orthodox and Roman Catholic ones, built atop the reputed site of Christ's crucifixion. I wanted to take Melissa to light candles in the Coptic chapel where I'd been a few days before. It was a glowing and otherworldly space that I'd found just divine. But there was a service in progress, and while she was lighting a candle outside the chapel, a procession of priests and monks basically shoved her out of the way. So we walked back to our hotel through the still empty streets, talking about our mutual lack of certainty, about the role that doubt plays in and maybe even defines our faith. I confess that the most accurate label for me, as much as I dislike labels, is Christian agnostic. I don't know that I can know in this lifetime much of the truth about God, or even whether God exists. While I choose to live as a follower of Jesus, I confess hope, but no certainty that he is divine. So where's the line between embracing faith's mysteries and wallowing in doubt? Is it humility that compels me to question God's providence, or even God's existence, or is it less virtuous than that? If it's true, does it even matter? By the time we emerged from the semi-dark warren of streets that defines much of the old city, the Jerusalem stone around us glowed in the early morning light. We hadn't eaten breakfast, so just inside the Jaffa Gate, I stopped to buy a sesame bread ring called Ka'ak from a street vendor. Later, our tour guide saw me eating a remnant of it and insisted it was a Jerusalem bagel, something that the Arab baker would no doubt have disputed. Hello, politics of food and naming. We tore off pieces of bread and ate as we walked, and I thought we could have used some wine. Communion has come to have a particular meaning in church talk that centers on a specific sacrament, bread and wine, or if you must, grape juice, the table of the Lord. But if you look at its etymology, the word communion has a broader significance. It's rooted in an old French word that means community, which is in turn derived from a Latin one that means sharing and participating together. Openness feeds communion. It demands the opposite of solitude. And pilgrimage, whether you're traveling solo along, say, the way to Santiago, joining yourself to the legions that have gone before, or like me, journeying with a group, pilgrimage is communion, or at least it can be. 
if your head and heart are pointed in the right direction. So I just want to end with a few kind of nuggets in progress. Um, I've been thinking a lot over the last day. And these thoughts feel even more urgent to me after what happened on Sunday morning. I want to write something that focuses less on what I've lost in terms of my relationship with my mother and more on what I've gained in my relationship with my husband. I struggle sometimes with the sense that my husband and I, when we're with our more liberal friends, they almost seem to be trying to compensate for our more conservative friends. Um, they pat us on the head like we're different and we're special because we're gay married. And we are who we are. We welcome everyone at our table. We have chosen not to cut off any of our friends, even the ones who said they couldn't come to our wedding for theological reasons. We believe in radical hospitality, and we believe in a generous love. We went hiking in Cornwall a few weeks ago. The trails can be rocky and hard, but the views are more than reward enough. They are spectacular. Sheer cliffs, cliffs plunging into the sea, and what a sea. That sea was all different shades of blue and green, sometimes like a sparkling sapphire, in places a tranquil turquoise, other times an angsty, angry grayish blue, like my most turbulent moods. Occasionally, we would pass towers of slate that looked like a giant must have carved them. Or maybe he stacked them as if the stones were ancient Legos. We walked mostly on the cliff tops, which were festooned with flowers, foxgloves, Queen Anne's lace, yellow ones and pink ones and purple ones that I still have to look up on the internet. The hills were occasionally so steep that they cut steps into the sides. And as we came up one stairway, there was an old couple gingerly making their way down. And the old man tended to bound ahead a bit, but that's a relative term. You would pass him at a saunter. The old lady had two walking sticks, and she took even more of her time. Once in a while, when he noticed the footing was less than secure, he would stop and look back and wait for her to catch up. She would get to him, and he would hold out a hand to steady her. I thought they were in their 80s, and Tristan and I watched them as discreetly as we could. Is that going to be us someday? I asked him. I hope so, he said. I imagine that old couple collapsing into the pub at day's end like we did, for gin and tonics and pints of bitter, and I imagine them ordering fish and chips, just one to split like we did. You know, my mom loves fish and chips too, but I didn't remember that until I got home. Because in Cornwall, the fish and chips were for me and Tristan. There was the crispy fried haddock. There was the lemon sole we had in Padstow, the best of the trip and the worst because we had to pay for the tartar sauce. One pound 20, that's almost $2. The thick cut chips, which we doused in vinegar. My husband has taught me so much. He introduced me to Mexican food in a way that I'd never experienced before. I used to think of refried beans basically in terms of how they look, which is like a pile of shit. <laughs> One of my husband's gifts to me is that I can now eat them without gagging. And I have introduced him to Chinese food in a way that he'd never experienced before. Not the MSG-laden version, but the light ingredient-driven version that allows the ingredients to shine with only the simplest of seasonings. I hate the term fusion cuisine, but I suppose in some sense that's what we're creating at my house. 
Our menus are like books of days, marking where we've been and what we've loved. We have a book where we keep track of who has joined us at our table and what we have served them. I add our favorite recipes, the ones that have been successful, the crispy waffles we make for breakfast, often with peppered bacon that we brought back with us from Texas, and the maple syrup that's a souvenir of Quebec. This is what our life together tastes like. In joy and in tears, we sit down and we eat. And to paraphrase the Bible, we taste and see. <laughs> oh, jeez, way to ruin a good kicker. Um, to, paraphrase, to paraphrase the Bible, we taste and see that the Lord is good. And so is this love that God has given us. Thanks, Jeff. Once again, one more hand. Seriously, this guy has been like here. So I'm curious, personal question. I mean, you've been here, I don't know, for the last three years doing this kind of stuff. What's your opinion of Boise? You live in Brooklyn, you're from San Francisco, you're cosmopolitan, right? So I mean, what that, do you think of Boise, Idaho? That, that is a mean question. I mean, what am I supposed <laughs> to say? I, I, look, I came back, right? So it doesn't suck. Uh, no, it's no, wonderful. It's, it's wonderful. We've had great meals here. Uh, Tristan came with me not this year, but last year. And he says he's on an every other year rotation. <laughs> uh, but I'll come back as long as you all will have me. It's, it, yeah. it's so hospitable. We love having you, exactly. And where, by the way, did you get your best meals in the area? Okay, so I feel like I'm supposed to say stayed in Lemp because you it was stay like the modern. The You're the modern right, right now. I right? just say the modern, yeah. Um, the <laughs> modern is where I drink, so that okay. is always at the top of my list. Um, you know, Tristan and I really liked Bluebird. Uh -huh. We've had such good sandwiches. It is the best, in my opinion, uh, the best so meal in town. Yeah. And it's only open until like four, which is kind of weird. But that said, you have this brand new project in the West. You like grew up in California. You know quite a bit about Chinese culture, I'm sure, in that part of the world, in San Francisco, and then up into the Intermountain West and Northwest. What's that going to entail? For this reporting trip? Yeah. So tomorrow morning, I'm getting up early, and I'm driving to McCall, and I'm going to stop by and uh, meet an archaeologist, and, and the archaeologist is going to show me around uh, the Chinese historic sites around Warren and just try to dig up some of that history. I was told at dinner tonight that there is not good Chinese food in Boise, which breaks my heart. I mean, look, you know I love food, but also given the rich Chinese history of Idaho, it just seems like such a shame that that heritage has been lost. And so I hope someone, some enterprising entrepreneur will do something about that because uh, you can do such wonderful things with Chinese ingredients, uh, modernize them, refine them, do things that uh, are new and fresh while also honoring tradition. And then from Warren, I'm going to drive uh, around, I guess, the top of the forest and end up uh, in, in Montana and see some of those sites. There's a Chinese-American museum in Butte, Montana. And then there's the Pekin Noodle Park. By the way, have you been to Butte? I have not. It's the weirdest place on the face of the earth, in my opinion. It's, I have it's heard. Weird. It's like, OK, it's a mile up and a mile down. and. People like walk from bar to bar. I've heard some not great things. Last time I was there, dude pants me. 
Seriously, right outside a bar. So that could happen. You be ready. <laughs> and <laughs> there is a lot of mining history and like a lot of Chinese, you know, sort of. Uh, <laughs> Will reporters have to be open to whatever the story brings? Yes, so, uh, I would say so. I did put a wig on last time I was there too, so you have that. So questions of more of more serious nature than the, yes. I have not. Many have Chinese not. families in Boise. So I, one of the things that I've learned, so I only have 1,200 words for this story. So I want to be respectful of people's time. And so I know there are only so many interviews I can do. And, and so I've been a little bit strategic about that. So I've read some. You know, Other people have suggested other stops as well. But you have to pick and choose. The questions, okay. The only time I use a so recording device. How do you device. conduct your interview? Yeah, I'll how do I reiterate this for the radio yeah, people? Sorry. So yes, yes. How do you conduct your interviews? Uh, so the only time I record, use a recording device, is when I know it's going to be a verbatim Q&A. Uh, I learned pretty early on in my career. It was actually a, an interview with Jamie Oliver, who some of you may have seen on TV. He was so awesome when we first got to his restaurant. And the second I put the tape recorder on the table, a different person came out. And I realized that even people who are pretty seasoned with interviews, with an electronic device, it often changes them. And you also have, because my recorder, it, it looks kind of like a torture device. It has things poking out from all directions. It's a physical barrier. So most of the time, if I'm not going to publish it verbatim, I just use pen and paper. And I've learned over the years my own version of shorthand. I write really fast. And I don't write everything down, because I know not everything is going to be useful. So if it's backstory, I'll just like write the details down, but I don't write everything down verbatim. The final question-ish, we're about we're up to 10 o'clock. What was your opinion of the Modern's meal this evening, by the way? You have laid it out. You get to it say nice great. things, of great. course, because uh, no, they always do delicious. awesome stuff I, here. I, I, I can't eat that much before I talk, so yeah. I had to like eat like I'm a supermodel. Well, you are, clearly. <laughs> um, I want to say thank you so much to Jeff and to Susan tonight. Thanks so much over there. You have your books you'll have up here. And Jeff, good luck on this reporting trip. And yeah, be careful in Butte. Be Thank careful in Butte. I should have you look at my friend Matthew Haynes, who lives in Butte, who could probably usher you around to some fun places. So thanks. <laughs>